It's good to be back with you. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Colossians as we continue our study of this uh, wonderful epistle written by Paul and the Holy Spirit uh, for the edification of the church at Colossae and also for us. And you'll remember uh, the outline of this book, I hope and trust by this point in the game, uh, that he kind of starts off with chapter 1 and gives a, a Christology, a theology of who Christ is, really emphasizing the, the sufficiency of of Christ, that he is absolutely sufficient for all that we need. And then in chapter 2, where we're at now, he has begun to talk about uh, not sufficiency, but deficiency. Not deficiency of Christ, but deficiency of the false teachers who are coming into Colossae and trying to tell people that Christ isn't sufficient. In fact, they're telling people that you need Christ plus something else. So he starts off with the theology in the first two chapters, then he moves on to the practical application of that in chapters 3 and 4, where he really talks about, okay, now you know this, how does how is it supposed to affect your life? How does it affect your Christian walk? And he does that kind of in concentric circles, moving away. It starts with me, and then it affects those closest to me, my wife, my family, uh, the people I work with, and eventually all the way out to the watching world. Now today, we're, we're talking in this section in chapter 2 about uh, these, these things that people try to add to Christ. Again, we don't need anything added to Christ because Christ is sufficient. We've looked at intellectualism, right? That is that our mind is the arbitrator of the truth and, and, and it rules over everything. We've looked at ritualism and, and legalism, which is always a battle in the church, rules and, and, and procedures that become bigger than the relationship. But the one today is probably the one that I think is, is probably most dangerous, or, or at least most prevalent in the church, and that is the issue of mysticism. All of them are certainly dangerous, but this one right here is sweeping the church. And it is the idea that theology grows out of personal experience. And this is extremely dangerous, and again, this is why Paul writes the way he writes, and this is what the pattern that we see laid out for us in Scripture. That is, that we, for example, when he's writing Colossians, he's writing theology for two chapters, affecting the mind, and then he talks about the experience, you see. So chapter 1 and 2, theology, chapter 3 and 4 is, uh, is the outworking of that theology. It's not all experience first and then let's talk about or get our theology from that. It's theology and then experience. He does that in Romans, right? Romans 1 through 11, theology, 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 with a little bit of, of application mixed in. But then by the time he hits chapters 12 through 13, guess what? Boom, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, right? And, and therefore, I, I urge you, brethren, Right? So that's what he does. He does it in 2 Corinthians, he does it in Romans, he does it in Galatians, he does it all through. You have theology follow, uh, following or preceding experience. In our society, though, the tendency is to do just the opposite, isn't it? In other words, most people, they don't want to do the hard work of seeing what God has to say and read and understand the theology that God has preserved for us in his word. Instead, the, the, the real tendency that most people have today is I just want to cut to the chase, right? I just want the experience. If the experience is good, then I know the theology behind it must be good. If I'm excited in church, if I have goosebumps or something like that, I know that what's going on must be of the Lord. Instead of, uh, of knowing theology and letting experience come out of that. J.C. Ryle, a great writer, uh, he said this. He said, you can talk about religious experiences all you wish. 
But if it does not have doctrinal roots, it is like flowers stuck in the ground, cut flowers stuck in the ground. They soon will wither and die. Why? Because theology or or religion based solely on experience doesn't work. The reason for that is that Satan is a counterfeiter, right? I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15 talks about the fact that there are these false apostles, there are deceitful workers who disguise themselves. Listen to this. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. They, they disguise themselves as, as angels of light, just like their, their forerunner, Satan, does. So it's no surprise that his servants do the same because he's a counterfeiter. By the way, you do understand that Satan can counterfeit miracles, right? You understand that? I mean, a lot of people say, well, you know, Satan can't do that. Well, read your Bible a little bit and let your theology then affect your experience. If you go all the way back into the Old Testament to Janus and Jambres, you remember those guys? Uh, Pharaoh's magicians, you remember this? And you remember Moses came in, you remember this, right? You've seen the movie, Let My People Go, Charlton Heston, all that kind of stuff. All right, this is, these guys were Pharaoh's guys. And so when he came, uh, Moses, on behalf of the Lord, saying, let my people go, and gave certain miracles. You remember what they did? They counterfeited them, didn't they? I mean, right off the bat, remember the rod that became a serpent? You know, Moses puts it down, boom, turns into a snake. Pretty cool, right? What did they do? They, they replicated that somehow, right? The blood became water. They replicated that again. The plague of frogs, even, that was duplicated, and that, you may be thinking, well, well, that's the Old Testament, and we're living in the New Testament times. That's not, you know, in the New Testament, it's the same way. Remember a, a cat in the New Testament in Acts by the name of Simon Magus? Remember this guy? He, he's a, the magician. He was a guy that was spoken of in Acts chapter 8. You can go read verses 9 through 24 sometime. He was a guy where the people would, would go to his ministry, and they'd say, look at this. This is the great power of God. But a little later, Peter calls him to his face and says, you have no part of parcel in this thing. You're not even part of it. It was just Satan's counterfeiting again. He wanted to buy the apostolic gifts. By the way, it's going to be that way in the future as well. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, Genesis and Jambres are brought up again. And Paul there, he's writing of false teachers. And he says, some are going to oppose, just like those guys did, with their tricks and their counterfeit activities. Counterfeiting signs, counterfeiting wonders, counterfeiting miracles. See it in Revelation 2 as well. I mean, uh, even at the end of times, it'll be the case with the false Christ and the false prophet doing the same thing. You say, well, if that's the case, how in the world do I deal with that? Because if something like that happens, I mean, how do I even know if it's true or not? Well, let me show you this, and it's been around for quite a while. Turn back in your Bibles, keep your finger in Colossians, and turn back to Deuteronomy 13. I'll show you exactly what God had to say on this matter. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. This is a key passage on this issue. All right, Deuteronomy 13, 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and, verse 2, the sign or the wonder comes true concerning what he spoke to you, saying, and here's what he's teaching, right? So you've got it so far, right? A guy comes up. He, he, he does a sign or a wonder, and it happens. But here's his theology. Ready? Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve him or serve them. 
What's the instruction from God? Well, it must be a God, right? Because it's got signs and wonders and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a whole movement based on attesting signs and wonders in our society today, right? What does God say? God says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. No, you should follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and then check these words out, I love these words, and cling to him. Isn't that good? Cling to him. So no matter what the activity is around you, the, the litmus test comes back to what there? It comes back to truth, right? It comes back to God's word, his commandments, what he has said, truth. So everything in the world can be looking the opposite way with attesting counterfeited signs and miracles and wonders, but the truth is the one that stands in judgment over those experiences. Are you tracking with me so far? Give me one of these if you are. Okay, good, good. So there is a danger that I think we have bought, in, we have bought into as a society of, of this experiential mysticism. That is, that the way I feel about things and my experiences determine truth rather than truth standing in judgment over my experiences and helping me to understand what they mean. Okay? So as we come to Colossians, we're going to see that Paul's seen that danger and he's warning the church there at Colossae about it, about this experiential mysticism. And Paul says there's this kind of teacher that, that has this ability. It says in our passage, if you look there in uh, Colossians 2, 18 and 19, there's this kind of false teacher that has the ability to defraud you, that is to keep you from claiming your prize. He's distracting you. He's, he's distracting some. Okay? So let's read our passage real quick, and then we'll get into it. And I want to show you to this uh, morning four traits of this false teacher of mysticism. Okay? Now we're in Colossians chapter 2, right? Verse 18 and 19 is what we're going to look at today. And here Paul continues and he says this. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. By the way, I love the parallel there. Did you catch it? From Deuteronomy 13 to Colossians 2, 19, where it talks about holding fast to the head, cling to the head. Okay, we'll look at that. Mysticism, by the way, just so you understand, is the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. It's a belief that spiritual reality is perceived apart from human intellect and natural senses, okay? It looks for truth, get this, okay, internally, weighing feelings, intuition, and other internal sensations more than objective, observable, external truth. That is the word of God, all right? You tracking with me? So it's the way I feel about something more than what God says. Does that sound a little bit like Deuteronomy 13 to you again? It should. It derives its authority, okay, this mysticism derives its authority from a self-actualized, self-authenticated light rising from within. In other words, you're looking for this kind of, I feel that way, it's the way I know it is, I've got a word from God, that kind of nonsense, all right? 
Now, there's problems with this, and I hope they're obvious to you, but in case they're not, you know, that's what I'm here for is to point them out, right? Okay, so a couple of problems with this. Number one, it it allows for this uh, unverifiable authority, okay? So, for example, uh, I come to you and I say to you, I've got a word from the Lord for you. I think you're supposed to uh, divorce your wife and marry this other person down the street and move to France and become an architect, what are you doing sitting here? Go do it, right? What, what do you say to that? I'm not really asking you. Be, I mean, if you want to speak, jump in, you can, but uh, I'm not putting you on the spot. What I'm getting at here is what do you, you can't respond to that because they say, I heard this from the Lord. I know it's true because I know that I know that I know. I feel it, right? And most of the time it's not as specific as that, but it's more the idea of, you know, I just know that we're supposed to not have guitars in church because guitars are of Satan right? Or drums or whatever, right? You ever heard that one? You might have heard that one before. You see, the, the, the thing that you're running into here is the people have become the authority and you cannot impeach that authority because they have said that they personally have received a word from God. What are you going to say? No, you haven't? I mean, that's probably a good place to go, but in the end, that really doesn't help the dialogue probably too much. So it, it allows for this unverifiable authority. Number two, it has self-appointed authorities. Now, that's closely related to number one, isn't it? It's the idea that people say, well, I've got this word now. Now I know the deeper subjective truths, so you need to come to me and learn from me. It's interesting. I was reading in a magazine that we get in Santa Clarita, and I saw this ad. It says, every Saturday morning, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., awakening the infinite self, an ongoing group meets at Angel's Corner, focusing on our journey on the path to enlightenment. Activities include guided meditation, exercises to open extrasensory gifts, energy healing, and sharing. For more information, call, well, I won't give you that. Uh, If you want it afterwards, come see me and we'll talk about it. But basically this person becomes, hey, I know more than you, I'm above you, and all this kind of stuff. Let me show you the way, based upon, again, not objective truth, but subjective experience. And it appeals, and this is the third problem, it appeals to us because it's kind of the fast food answer to religion, isn't it? It's a shortcut. In other words, you don't need to study, you don't need to learn, you don't need to grow. All you need to do is really just kind of sit in a corner somewhere and wait for your spiritual buzzer to go up. You know, oh, that was great, you know. And you see this all the way back, and this is the way Satan's operating. This is nothing new. I mean, think back all the way to the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, remember in the Garden of Eden, Satan approaches Eve and he wants to distract her, right? And what's his argument that he uses? You're going to know more, right? You're going to be like God. Now think about that for a second. Here they are in the Garden of Eden, folks. How cool would that be? Anybody here rather be in the Garden of Eden than this room? (laughs) With this hot room? I'm not talking about my preaching. I'm talking about the room, all right? Don't get on me there. Walking through God's produce section, right? Everything's perfect. There's no thistles. There are no thorns. There's none of this kind of stuff. And he comes through and he says, wait, there's not enough. Paradise is not enough. You see, he's, he really doesn't have your interest in mind. Mm-mm. He's hiding the good stuff from you. This may look good to you, but it's not. He's got better stuff. You want to be like him. Why don't you do this? Why don't you eat that fruit over there he said not to eat of, and you'll be like him. Shortcut, Right? And it's the same thing. Instead of, think about what God did to preserve 
his word for us to have in our hands today. Think about that. How he moved men by his spirit to pin these things. And then these things were kept and preserved while people were trying to trash it, remove it, destroy it over all the years of history. The church was persecuted. The word of God went forth. Uh, Copies of the Bible were burned in certain civilizations, right? But the word of God remains intact, true, unaltered. That's pretty cool, huh? Through the blood of the martyrs, through, his, through the work of the, of the Lord, we have the word of God. It's in front of us. It's one, well, 66 books in one book, right? With everything that God says you need pertaining to life and godliness. Now, if I told you that, I know you got a book sale going on back here. I got 4,000 books. I'm not getting on the book sale. Please don't take it that way. What I'm saying is this, all right? If you told me there's one book that had the key to everything, how many books would I read and study before that book if I really believed you. Think about that for a second. Here's the one book for your job that's gonna make you the best at your job. Well, let me go down at whatever cost, let me get on Amazon and order that book right now because if that's really gonna do that, man, I need to have that book for my job, right? But here it is, God has preserved his word so that you can be who he wants you to be, so that you can be the kind of husband, the kind of wife, the kind of parent, the kind of coworker, the kind of citizen that he desires you to be, that you can bring glory to his name. It's in one book, but yet here's what we wanna do. Let's put that thing, we might bring it out on Sundays, let's stick it in the back of our car the rest of the week, right in the, in the back window until we need it again. And let's watch TV and see what Oprah has to say and see what Dr. Phil's adding to the equation and you know what I mean? Ask my friends, I've got this problem. What can I, you know, I'm not saying you don't go to friends, you don't seek counsel. The Bible has plenty of things on that. I've spent my life giving counsel, okay? But the counsel is only valuable if it is based upon what? God's inerrant truth, the word of God. Are you digging it? Do you know what I'm talking about here? I mean, this is really essential because in our society, it's very, very subtle how experience becomes the end all be all. And so people, I've had people sit before me in my living room, a, a wife who's leaving her husband and say, there's no spiritual, there's no reason to leave, there's no reason to have this divorce, but I know this, I know God wants me to be happy, and the only way I'm gonna be happy is without him. I know that's what he wants. Can you biblically see any problem with that? I hope that you can. The Word of God has very clear instructions on marriage, on divorce, on what God's main goals for you are. How you deal with hardship, how you deal with persecution, how you deal with difficulty in relationships. It's all in there, but what we're looking for are shortcuts, right? And that's what this guy was. I know, I know that's what he wants for me, to be happy. So you can bring me the verses, Pastor, and you can show me where this is different from what he says, but he wants me to be happy. And the inference there is God is inconsistent. He tells us one thing here, and he tells us another thing in our liver quivers. Dig it? I knew that you could. So Paul here is attacking this issue of, 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 of mysticism because it is a very, very significant thing, and I submit to you that it's a very significant issue in our own world today. Now what he does here is he lays out that text that I read to you earlier, is he gives four traits of a false teacher. Let me give you number one. These are on your outline. False humility is the first one, okay? He delights himself, look at our passage. He delights himself, he delights in self-abasement, 18a. That is the idea of, he delights in mock humility, basically. Which, by the way, is the worst kind of pride. The, the, 
you know, it's like the pastor that was given a medal for his humility and he, they took it away from him because he, he wore it. You can't do that, right? Humility doesn't work that way. Uh, this is the kind of thing, like, I don't remember if you had to read David Copperfield when you were back in school, but Uriah Heep, you remember this guy? Oh, I'm the most humblest man there is. And the whole time he's working about it, it's pride. You see, there's a, all these guys are characterized by a false humility. False teachers have false humility. They, I don't know everything. I'm just more enlightened than you. So in other words, I'm the one you're supposed to put here, but I'm really not supposed to be the one. You know, it's just because I have this special knowledge. And it comes down to where it becomes you need a series of mystical steps to get to God that are, off, that are apart from Christ. In other words, the simplicity of the gospel is polluted by the fact that you've got to jump through a bunch of mystical hoops to have this kind of relationship. The gospel, my friends, is much more simple than that. I hope you understand that, right? The gospel is, is, is a, a direct approach thing, isn't it? The veil has been torn from top to bottom. We, we don't need anybody to, to be our priest or anything like that because God has opened up that through Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator there is. Amen? And so these false teachers, have, you know, begin to put together their own little systems of how you are to get saved. In the case of the Colossians here, of course, the issue was these The worshiping of angels, there was a hierarchy of angels that needed to be go through because we're not good enough, so we need this angel A that helps me, that then A talks to B, B talks to C until eventually somebody gets the message to Christ and to God. And Christ was just one of that series. I'm not good enough to deal directly with God, I can only talk to an angel. Can I tell you, you're not good enough, I'm not good enough to deal directly with God, save for the work of Christ, right? His blood applied to my situation. Do you see what that says about Christ's sacrifice, by the way, if you have to have all these different levels to get there? It says that his sacrifice isn't sufficient. It it displaces Christ as well uh, from his rightful place as mediator. By the way, this, this situation is going to plague this region for years to come. In AD 363, the Council of Laodicea had to take a stand here. In, Laodicea is this region here where Colossae is. Had to take a stand against invoking angels. That's about uh, 300 years later from when this was written. In AD 739, Michael the archangel was worshipped in this area and credited for all kinds of miraculous cures. Today, you see it in the New Age movement. You see it in the Roman Catholic Church with the praying to saints and Mary and all that kind of stuff. And again, the the problem that was being brought in here to Colossae was the worship of angels. Now, the Bible is clear who's worthy of worship, isn't it? Let me ask you a pop quiz. You ready for a pop quiz? Am I worthy of worship? Oh, you're not going to hurt my feelings. You're going to hurt my feelings if you don't say it. Am I worthy of worship? No, all right. Hey, let me ask you this. This may hurt, okay? Are you worthy of worship? No, no. Uh, is an angel worthy of worship? Is, is John MacArthur worthy of worship? No, right? None of, none of these things are worthy of worship. Matthew 4.10 says you shall worship who? The Lord your God and worship him only. The Bible is clear you're not to worship anybody else, and including, by the way, angels specifically. Revelation 19, you'll remember John tried to worship an angel and and that angel rebuked him and said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Worship God only. 
Had to repeat it again in Revelation 22.9 for emphasis. Angels are a big deal today. You see whole shelves of it on the bookstore and the art and TV shows and celebrities. You know, remember Shirley MacLaine touched by it. You know, she had an angel guy named Kevin that she got all her information from. It's all over the place. It's gone even further than that now where it's not so much the angel, but people are teaching that you can be God, right? You see this in the New Age movement. You see it in Mormonism, pantheism, things like that. Can I just give you a profound lesson in theology? You ready for this? This is the most profound thing you're going to hear all day. After this, you can just shut me off. It doesn't matter anymore because this is it. You ready? Two points of this profound theology. Ready? Number one, there is one God. All right, got that? I'll give you time to write it down. There is one God. Okay, you got it? Number two, ready? You ain't him. Huh? Isn't that good? There's only one God. You're not him. You see, I found out a long time ago that I'm not God. I'm not even the assistant God. And and that's the issue is that when I step up and try to act like I'm God, when I become the determiner of truth, the determiner of my own life's direction, apart from his truth, guess what happens? It's always a problem. It's always a problem. There may be pleasure for a little while. There may be something that's kind of exciting or something for a little while. But in the end, it is always a problem. We're not God. All right, number two. False teachers. Another mark is false revelation. Look at verse 18 again. The last part of the verse says, He takes his stands on visions he has seen. If you have King James that says on things he has not seen, that's not best. That was added later, Okay. Uh, They were just trying to emphasize that he didn't really see them. It doesn't matter if he saw them or not, quite honestly, and that's what the original text says. He's taking a stand on things that he has seen. And you see this in false teachers and heretics and cultists throughout time. They claim support based upon, what, some kind of vision. It was Angel Moroni. It was a hill where, you know, I got some golden plates and all this kind of stuff. And you can imagine the problem here. With our finite, depraved minds trying to have a sense of what's real and what is not from the sense of a dream or something like that, right? I mean, I can go out and I can go down to Doritos uh, Taco Loco from Taco Bell or something. They got a spicy one now here, all right? And that's going to that's gonna put stuff in my system that I'm going to toss and turn. I'm going to have all kinds of dreams. I'm going to get up with three new religions in the morning if I eat one of those. No, no, no. Remember the danger. Satan masquerades, him, masquerades as an angel of light and, and he, he loves to counterfeit things. So there's no need for that. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 told us that God spoke to us, spoke to the fathers long ago through the prophets, right? In many portions, in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through who? His son, through the living word, through the word of God. And that's God's message for these times. There is no other revelation. You don't add or subtract to the word of God. That's not what it is. All revelation you can find right here. Okay? That's the reality. Anything that comes in outside of that is derived from it or in contradictory to it. Number three. We have false humility, false revelation. Number three, false thinking. Look at verse 18, the last part. It says, he is inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. The word inflated there, the idea of being puffed up, the the word has the picture of like the bellows of a blacksmith, you know. He's inflating himself by his flesh. And the point is, this self-evaluation that's by self, not by the word of God, 
but just the promptings of our own, as it says here, fleshly mind, that leads to false conclusions and false truth. The intellect controlled by the flesh, get this, is deceitful. The intellect must be controlled by who? The Holy Spirit of God. Set your mind on the things above is what we'll get to later in Colossians. Submit your mind to the truth, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because there is a fleshly aspect to, still to us, we need to be careful always to evaluate our experiences against Scripture, against truth. If you have an experience and you say, oh, I wonder if this is what this means or something, go to the Word of God, test it against Scripture. Well, I'm not saying that we don't have a heartfelt religion, right? A relationship with God. I'm a passionate guy, right? I mean, I think, you know, we ought to have a good time in church. I think we ought to get excited about God and the things of God. I believe that we, our mind ought to be awed with the, with the awesomeness and the greatness of who God is. I believe that our heart ought to be filled with the love of God. I believe that our will ought to be submitted to the will of God. I believe in a heartfelt religion, okay? And I'll tell you what, what happens is there's two extremes that people go to. You go to the experience-only religion, which is all about the bells and whistles and the hopping and the popping and all that kind of stuff. And that's one thing, and there's no real truth hanging out in that. Or you go to the other side where you're so scared to be like that, you become the fraternity of the frozen instead of the Lord's chosen, right? You know what I'm talking about? You can ice skate down the aisles to get in these churches. I love music that's exciting. I love a message that's exciting. But I tell you what, it always, both of those, always have to be based upon and based upon the, the word of God, not upon fleshly desires or thinking. Okay? Number four. You have false humility, false revelation, false thinking. The, the fourth mark of a false teacher of mysticism is he has a false foundation. Look at verse 19. He is not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. I love that word, holding fast there. <laughs> you see that word, that Greek word behind that being used elsewhere in Scripture? I'll give you a few examples. Acts chapter 3, verse 11. You remember Peter and John at the beautiful gate? Remember the guy, silver and gold, have I none? Remember that? You sang the song of VBS or something, right? Uh, this guy's healed, okay? And he's just, it says there, he's holding fast. He just, he got so excited, he's just clinging, you know what I mean? He was just clinging to him like they were the, the end of all, the end of all of everything. Hey, I'll tell you another one, if this wouldn't do it for you. If you're single, you need to close your ears right now. But this one's in Song of Solomon. You ever hear that preached in church? Chapter 3, verse 4, where it talks about the two married lovers clinging to one another. She was holding on to him and wouldn't let go of him. Deep abiding love is the picture there. By the way, remember Deuteronomy 13? What did it say? Cling to who? Him. Cling to him. False teachers, like Pharisees, neglect the things of God and hold fast to the traditions or the teachings of men. Right? That's Mark chapter 7, verse 8. Paul says we should hold fast, cling to the head. Who's the head? Well, we've already talked about that in chapter 1 in our theology, right? Chapter 1, verse 18. The head of the church is who? Christ, right? 
Cling to him, cling to Christ. And it's a great picture that he paints here in verse 19 because as we've talked about when we talked about the head the last time, the body cannot function without its head. And it's the same way spiritually for us. If we're not clinging to Christ, our head, we're not gonna function well. I mean, have you ever seen a chicken with its head cut off? That's the way you function. John 15, verses four and five says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's to the point, isn't it? Jesus says, apart from me, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. And it is there, it is in Christ, in that relationship where experience then has its place. We do not, as some, get our theology from our experience, but rather our experience flows out of, flows from our theology. And you see this picture in Scripture, right? Remember, it was it, Luke uh, 24? Remember the disciples? This is after Jesus has been crucified, right? He's risen. He, they don't know this yet, right? And there's a couple of disciples walking along an old dirt road, right? The road to Emmaus. Remember that? And they're walking along and Jesus appears to them and he's got like the new body so they don't even know it's him, right? Which is, I think, gonna be really fun if you're a practical joker. Anyway, he's got this thing. He's walking along and he's just kind of, hey guys, what's going on? Starts up a conversation. Well, they're like, oh, tell them about the events of what happened in Jerusalem and how, you know, we thought this was the guy. And, and, and he, he takes that. Then what does he do? He takes them to truth, right? He goes to the law and to the prophets, to the scriptures. And he begins to talk to them about what they've just seen. And he takes where their, what they had seen, their experience, was causing them to go, I don't know what to do, and lose it in despair, right? Now he takes them to the truth, and their experiences properly um, uh, analyzed that they were having. And check this out. A new experience comes out of it. As he, as he shares the truth of the prophecies about Jesus Christ. Do you remember what it says about them there in Luke chapter 24? It says, our hearts begin to burn within us. Check that out, huh? That wasn't like, you know, I had you know, bad taco. This was, I am just, what, I'm fired up? You mean, this, there's something to this. This is real. Now I'm looking at the truth of Scripture and I'm getting it. He went back to the source of God's revelation of himself. He went back to the Word. And folks, that is how you grow. By clinging to, to Christ, by clinging to the head. And that's what Paul's saying here. You know, it's interesting. Did you know that at the base of your skull, there's a gland there. It's called the pituitary gland, right? You know this gland? It's the one that kind of makes you grow. Some of us have bigger pituitary glands than others. I'm aware of that, all right? But you, you know what I'm talking about? There's, right there, it's a beautiful, I think, illustration of this, showing the head as a source of growth. He could have put that thing anywhere, but I think it makes a great illustration of what we're talking about here. You see, I have to be connected to Christ, and from there I grow. The word grow there in our passage is, is a continuous action verb. It's a process. It's, a, it's a, that progressive sanctification that we've talked about. You know, you don't grow to maturity all of a sudden, right? When was the last time you saw a baby born, eight pounds, 21 inches, that the next day it was... Uh, 240 pounds, six foot four. You don't see that, right? 
Why? Because that's not the way growth works. That's why it's a continual thing. You're growing as you cling to the head, as you come to truth, as the, as the head works in your life, as Christ works in your life. And that's probably what concerns me most about those who want to choose and chase after the mystical things because they're looking for that quick fix and they're looking for that shortcut and that's not God's design. It's not God's way. God's way is daily transformation, growing daily. Think about the metaphors in the Bible of the Christian life. I mean, just in, in, in 2 Timothy 2, you, you, see a, you see things like a race, a farmer, a soldier, right? All those are processes. You don't plant the seed and the next day go out with your combine and harvest it, right? It's a process. You don't start the race without taking steps in the race. They are all processes. The only instantaneous part is, is the new birth, right? And the glorification. Those are the only instantaneous part. The sanctification is a process. What helps us grow daily? Well, this is how it works. First Timothy 2, or 1 Peter 2, 2 tells us, desire the pure milk of the word. You can't grow if you're not in the word. Simple as that. You know, it's, people are sitting around, I'm waiting on a word from the Lord, and their Bible's closed. That's like saying I'm waiting for a text message and my phone's off, right? That results in when you spend, when you desire the pure milk of the word and you get into the word of God, that results later, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.18, that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in that process then, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are transformed from grace to grace, more and more made into his image. Why in the world would you want to leave real, effective transformation in Jesus Christ to go through the maze of mysticism, which has no, no payoff? There's a story of a dog. He was wandering around one day, and as he's just kind of going through his life, he comes across this bone. Ah, oh, it's a beautiful bone. He, he, this is the best bone this dog's ever seen. And he just does what a dog does. He just reaches down and clamps right onto that bone and starts happily just kind of you know, just kind of moving along down the path. As the path goes around a corner, he comes to a little pond. And he's, he's just happy as a dog with a bone. Huh? And he gets there and he looks down into that water and he sees his reflection. He, he sees what he sees. Not, he doesn't even notice the dog really. He notices this bone in the water. And he has this wonderful bone that he was so content with and so wonderful in his mouth. But he looks at that one and he goes, wow, I think I want that bone. And you know what he did? He tried to get that bone. You know how that worked? He opened his mouth to try to go for that one. And guess what? He lost them both. It doesn't work. See, we have as Christians all the things that we need pertaining to life and godliness. That's 2 Peter 1.3, right? Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, not most things, everything pertaining to life and godliness. What else is outside that? Through, check it out, the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Isaiah 8, 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Here's the command, to cling to the head. Right? 
Uh, Christ is central. My mind is not it. That's intellectualism. The rules aren't it. That's ritualism and, and legalism. My experience is not it. Like mysticism here, Christ is central. Guess what? Cling to the head. Jesus is fully God. Chapter 2, verse 9, we've already looked at it. Therefore, nothing needs to be added to him. Cling to the head. You are complete in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10 told us, therefore, nothing needs to be added to you. Cling to the head. That's what we take away from this. We have all that we need in Christ. Let's don't add mysticism to it. Let's don't add intellectualism to it. Let's don't add ritualism, aestheticism, legalism, nothing to it because in Christ, you have been made complete because he is the fullness of deity and he dwelt in bodily form and he came to give you a complete salvation so that you may live, cling to the head. In the manner that you were saved, so walk in him until the day when we are either called back to him or instantly glorified, right? Cling, I forgot the rest, what was it? To the head, thank you. You guys are great. That's it. I love the simplicity of that. God is not this, I don't know if you had an uncle like this who was like always kind of tricking you, you know? You know, the mean kind of, not, he's not mean, he means well, but he's like hide and seek kind of uncle, you know? He's always like, hey, I got your gift. Where is it, you know? How many, how many, what do I have behind my back? God's not like that. God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to grow. He wants you to have a, a fulfilling life in Christ. He wants you to be able to, to go through persecution well. He wants you to go through joyous times well. He's not a, he's not a bad uncle. And so he, he lays it out there. And, and He came from heaven to see so that you could be saved, so that I could be saved, Right? I mean, this is not somebody trying to hide it from you. He has given you all the information you need in the book that he preserved for you. That's not hiding it from you. He has given you as a believer the Holy Spirit of God so that you can understand what's written in this book. That's not hiding it from you. Cling to the head. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for your truth, your word, which uh, often cuts us to the quick and shows our, our inconsistencies. It instructs us, it trains us so that we can be adequate, equipped for every good work. We thank you that you've done this for us. Lord, may we be faithful men and women who desire the pure milk of the world word, and who, 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 who work hard at learning about you through your word and putting into practice the things that we find there in our own lives for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.